You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.38, Like Looking in a Mirror, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and you may not like Stampa, and actually I hope you don't, but you do have to admit, he can pose a gunpla real good. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and wondering if I will ever be able to suspend my disbelief of Earth environments on the colonies. The recreation of an environment, with all its interconnected and interdependent species, has seemed completely impossible to me ever since I learned about food chains. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 447 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Joseph A., Golgari Soul, and Zookeeper. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Next week's episode, releasing on June 12th, 2021, is coming out as normal. But the week after that, there will be no new episode. We are taking some long-delayed family time. This will be our last break of Season 3, and when we come back, we will be covering the beginning of the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 40, Tiger Bomb Dream, or Taiga Bomu no Yume. This episode originally aired on December 6, 1986. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko, and directed and storyboarded by Kawase Toshifumi. For our research this week, Nina's going to crack this whole thing wide open with research on why a Side 3 colony was named for a medicinal ointment. But first, Radio Free Shangri-La. Come in. Hi, Mr. Timpson. Oh, sorry, Tom. You just look so much like Mr. Timpson. It's fine. And you know this used to be his office. Really, it's fine. Oh, what's that you have for me? Oh, right. Here's the script for the next episode. We lost so much time dealing with the ship breaking down and that whole thing with the Neo-Zeon channel trying to buy us and Mr. Timpson sacrificing himself so that we could escape. The collision of radio realities lost all its momentum. So we all put our heads together and we figured out a way to really push the pace for the big climax. Great. I can't wait to read it. Oh, Mr. Timpson never wanted to act in any of our shows because he was afraid that his enemies would recognize his voice or something. But since you're new here, we wanted to write you into this one. Make you feel like you're really part of the team. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you, Tish. You're welcome. We're all really looking forward to working with you. I mean, gosh, it's like somebody made a copy of Mr. Timpson, but only included the nice parts. I'm new here, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but this guy sounds like a real jerk. Yeah. But honestly... I'm going to miss Tim's temper tantrums.
We now return to the collision of radio realities. As Alice Computesworth holds Bethany and her faithful butler, Gildenstern, at gunpoint in the western stairwell of the Presidential Palace in Dakar. Now, dear sister, you're going to do exactly as I say, or else I'll be forced to ruin your precious butler's tuxedo with bullets. Uh... Sorry, that sounded better in my head. I mean, I'm going to shoot him. Oh, I don't want you to do that. That's... Ugh, I know, that's why it's a threat. Look, just do what I say and nobody has to die. Uh, but what about Hector? He must be pretty close to dying by now. Fine, do as I say and no butlers have to die. Now, Bethany... You're going to marry Mr. G. Or should I say, Neo Zeon Officer Glemmy Toto? Don't do it, Bethany. You'll be disinherited, and Alice will get the whole computes worth fortune. Quiet, you. Oh, dear. Anyway, it's not like you'll be penniless. He's the heir to the largest toilet fortune in the Earth sphere. I know, I know. But everyone knows he squandered his whole inheritance on weird refrigerators and something called a Bawoo Nutter. And anyway, I don't want to marry him. I want to marry Hector. Then it's too bad you don't have a choice. Wait, Alice. Hector? Hector Pariah, how did you... No, I shot you. I'm quite sure of it. Silence, you buffoons. Can't you see this is the other one? Now, what's happened? I've only just heard from my contacts in the Ministry. They're going to give Side 3 to Neo Zeon. No. The war is as good as finished. Neo Zeon won't be rebelling against the Federation anymore. And per the terms of your late father's will, I'm afraid it's over, Alice. No, nothing is over. I won't accept this. Come on. But to where? To Dublin. The Federation brass has a secret base there. I'll convince them to keep fighting one way or another. And Bethany, don't even think about following us. And now the recap for Tiger Bomb Dream. As planned, the Nail Argama approaches one of Side 3's neutral colonies. Called Tiger Bomb, it's like no colony we've ever seen. The outside is painted green with a massive golden dragon undulating down the length of it. The approach is littered with mines, and they barely scrape through unscathed. Inside, the walls of the entrance are covered in massive murals, paintings of mountains and phoenixes, but their awe is interrupted by the arrival of the local security and port officials. Pilots are roughly shoved out of the way as tape seals are placed on their mobile suit cockpit doors, and everyone, military and civilian alike, is ordered off of the ship and through a checkpoint. They enter the colony through an ornate, Chinese-style building on the waterfront, 
From a second floor balcony, a group of local kids watch the new arrivals and plot how to steal a mobile suit, while a guard extols the virtues of Tiger Balm and its leader, Stampa Haloi, who has kept the colony out of the current war. The same guard gets a call over his earpiece. Stampa is watching from secret cameras, and after ogling Haman and her attendant, El and Rue, Sarasa and Rasara, he orders them separated from the group and brought to him. From the guard's reaction, this is not an unusual request. The group from the Nail Argama begin to feel suspicious when they are split up, the boys on one bus and the girls on another, but Sarasa encourages them all to go along with it. They're strangers here, after all, and don't know how things are usually done. The boys' bus never reaches its destination. On their way, the group of local kids attack the bus with a petite mobile suit and try to take them all hostage. Jumping on top of the bus, the petite mobile suit smashes one hand through the windshield. The bus crashes and the driver is knocked unconscious. But Judo climbs out, jumps onto the petite mobile suit, and after a brief struggle, pitches the local kid out of the cockpit. The local kids try to run, but Judo stops them, asking if Stampa put them up to this. To the surprise of the crew, it turns out that the kids want a mobile suit to sell. They can't pay their taxes, and anyone who can't pay is sent to work in nearby mines, even children. The leader of this local gang, a boy named Lunan, also tells them it's likely Stampa took the girls from the Nail Argama for his harem. The girls' bus drives out of the city through a huge, densely forested park, stopping just outside the walls of a massive compound. Mobile suits are arrayed through landscaped grounds, posed like sculptures of gods or martial artists. The whole group of them are locked in a room together, although after Sarasa tries to talk to Haman about her self-deceit and the need to let the light shine on her heart, Haman and her companion demand to be moved to another room. Across town, the local kids have decided to help Judo and company rescue their friends, if only to stick it to Stampa. With wigs, makeup, and dresses, they disguise Judo and Ino as girls. They will gain entry to Stampa's mansion, while Bicha, Mondo, Lunan, and the rest wait outside to cover the escape. Judo and Ino, along with Lunan's little sister, pretend to be orphans, desperate for work, and beg to be allowed to work in Stampa's household. They are all brought inside to where Stampa is introducing himself to El, Rue, Rasara, and Sarasa. Ino and Lunan's sister are deemed pretty enough to stay, but Judo is sent away. In the hall, Judo finds himself alone with a guard and is able to knock the man unconscious and take his gun before escaping from the mansion. Out on the grounds, Judo takes one of the mobile suits while Lunan takes another, and they call out to their friends, trying to find the right room. When El hears them, she throws a chair through a window and Judo lowers everyone from the mansion to the ground in his mobile suit's hand. While the rest of the group make their escape, Judo finds himself confronted by Haman. He finally recognizes her, and she tells him that she made this whole plan so that she could ask him to join her. If he won't, he will suffer a useless death. Judo is quick to refuse and attacks her immediately, but she is standing outside her mobile suit and he cannot bring himself to kill an unarmed person. In the end, 
Judo escapes back to the Argama with the rest of his friends and the gang of kids from Tiger Balm. War is coming, no matter how Stampa tries to prevent it reaching the colony. Sarasa senses a whirlpool of evil. Not just Haman, but the countless evil deeds of adults, piling on top of each other, crushing everything that is pure and beautiful. Outside Tiger Bomb, Mashima's ship approaches. The impression that I get from talking to people in the fandom is that this particular episode, or really the whole Tiger Bomb arc, is um, quite widely reviled, even by people who like Double Zeta. The sort of common narrative you hear about Double Zeta is that the first half is goofy and bad, but then it gets serious and it gets good in the second half, except for those Tiger Bomb episodes. And the Tiger Bomb episodes, they stand out in another way. As I kind of mentioned last episode, the Tiger Bomb episodes were not originally planned as part of the series. They were added because uh, I guess the series episode count was extended and they needed to fill it in with something else. It's, it's quite literally filler. Um, and what that means is that the staff had a little bit more freedom to have fun with it and do what they wanted to do, but they also had fewer resources. A lot of the pre-production planning materials that were prepared for the rest of the show simply weren't available for what they wanted to do with Tiger Bomb, which led to kind of a unusual storyline, um, some not terribly great animation quality, and uh, what a lot of people view, I think, as a detour from the main story that totally kills the momentum. But with that in mind, uh, it also makes the episode really interesting to analyze from our perspective, because it is a, a situation where the staff was essentially free to do what they wanted to do. And they sure came up with some uh, really interesting things for this episode. Two small notes before we delve into that deeply. I did check almost immediately uh, as to whether or not Tiger Balm is supposed to be Tiger Balm, like the ointment that is world-renowned for muscle aches and pains. And it is. That is exactly how you spell it in Japanese. We discussed very briefly why whoever translated for the subtitles might have spelled it differently <laughs> in this case, uh, and it's almost certainly a trademark issue. Yeah, and this is both a defensive and offensive maneuver. Defensive because Sunrise and Bondi don't want to get sued by the Tiger Balm Company. And offensive because, you know, like with the Elmeth, which we think is derived from Hermes, the name for Hermes and also the uh, French luxury brand, if they want to be able to defend their trademark, if they want to be able to use it in commerce, it needs to be something unique. And I also found myself thinking again about the judo who narrates the intros of each episode, the one who refers back to the previous happenings, and how it's either judo from the future, who's been through all of this before and is recounting it in the past tense, or some omniscient version of judo. So maybe maybe there are also judo clones. Judo too. Um, because... He actually refers to himself at one point and is like, 
I don't know that Haman is here yet. They didn't tell me Haman is here. And it <laughs> Wait, hang on. I got this one. Ju-duo. Uh, uh, uh? That's pretty good. Or when cross-dressing, Ju-duet. You're jumping ahead. We're not there yet. I'm foreshadowing, Nina. One further production note. The mobile suits that appear in this episode are all old ones. They're from First Gundam. Well, with one exception that I'm sure Nina will talk about in a second. Um, and this is one of those cases where the uh, setting materials were not available to the artists because they had not planned to include these mobile suits in Double Zeta. They had not prepared the usual artists' aids, the renderings of what these mobile suits ought to look like from every different angle. So what they did when they were drawing this episode was they gave the artists the toys. <laughs> they gave them toys of these mobile suits to use for their models. I love it. And, you know, you can kind of see that the art quality in the episode isn't as good as it often is. And that's probably partly because they were working off of these models and probably partly because they were working on a tight time frame. I did notice that I recognized the bulk of the mobile suits in this episode. The one I didn't recognize, which also a favorite <laughs> of the episode, is the one that Judo refers to as an anachronism. And the reason he calls it an anachronism is that that is the one mobile suit from this whole group that wasn't actually in First Gundam. So this is clearly like a museum of Xeon amphibious mobile suits from the One Year War, but the uh, anachronism one, the Agugai, was not actually in First Gundam, which is why he calls it an anachronism. It's from the Mobile Suit Variations design series. Is that color scheme its original color scheme? Because it's very unusual. I don't actually remember what the original color scheme for that one is. I do know that a bunch of the MSV color schemes are kind of out there. Because it was what, like red, green, and gold? Or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, definitely like a lot of bright colors. Right, but kind not of clashing. But not primary colors. You know, the, the Gundam series are almost always done up in primary colors. Whereas the Xeon mobile suits tend to be much more muted earth tones, especially the amphibious ones. And more monochromatic. I actually thought the color scheme on, you said it's an Agugai? Agugai. The color scheme on the Agugai uh, felt very in keeping with the setting, with the art for mm. uh, the Chinese or pseudo-Chinese <laughs> uh, art and architecture that are everywhere. Regrettably, one of the Xeon amphibious mobile suits, the Zok, did not show up in this episode, which is a shame. I always liked the Zok. I especially like the couple of mobile suits that they have um, basically done up to look like gods. Specifically, I think they're the Neo, the benevolent heavenly kings who are the protectors of the Dharma. And the, the reason that we say that about the visual design is the... Uh, the bits of cloth that sort of float almost halo-like up and around the mobile suit, that's a, a common part of both painted and sculptural depictions of various East Asian gods. And these, the Neo in particular, are often used as guardians for thresholds to entering palaces or temples. This is an episode where we might need to include a whole lot of visuals <laughs> Uh, on our social media or in a Patreon post because 
while the animation quality may not be what we've gotten used to in Double Zeta, the richness of visual details is still pretty high. Yeah, it's incredibly dense, and we may not be able to adequately convey that in an audio-only format, which is unfortunate. I am going, however, to <laughs> try to list all of the various details that stood out to me, just to give you a sense of how many there were. You know, even if you were watching closely, you may have missed some of them. Uh, but before we do that, there was a bit of a dialogue that felt like it didn't work <laughs> with the rest of the visual design in the episode. When they're coming in, the entrance, once they are inside the colony, is painted in these massive murals of like phoenixes and mountains. <laughs> and Bicha describes it as hade, which is translated as flashy here, which is a good translation for it. It's a word that means showy, rich, but in kind of a almost a tacky way, like yeah, <laughs> over <yeah>. the top. <laughs> I sometimes see it translated as nouveau riche. Clearly, Beecha likes it. <laughs> he doesn't mean anything negative by it whatsoever. Beecha's the guy who pilots the Hyakushiki. I mean, come on. That's true. Uh, and then when Torres is talking about the influences for the design of the colony, in the translation, he says, oh, it's supposed to be like Hong Kong or Kyoto of, you know, the olden days, before the universal century. Uh, but the word that he uses when he's listing in Japanese is toka, which is, it's like saying such as or something like. It's a, It makes it a bit more vague uh, and implies less of a sort of direct connection, which helps explain why it really looks nothing like <laughs> Kyoto <laughs> at all. It's funny to me that they would even mention it. Um, Maybe the idea there is a city um, for show, a city that is presented to the outsiders, a place for tourists to come and like see culture. Yeah, uh, very possibly. But yes, there are these massive murals. There is a huge golden dragon on the outside of the colony itself, which I'm sure painting the outside of a colony is supremely impractical. And yet they did it. <laughs> Personally, I think it's really cool. Oh, I, I think it's very cool. I'm just saying that it's impractical. It is very likely to affect how sunlight gets into the colony. And we know many of the colonies use natural sunlight for ah, certain things. I, I can actually make a point here about the Universal Century context. Oh, -ho. side three is unique among all of the sides because in side three, the colonies are closed. There are no windows. Okay. That makes it, yeah, I I was looking at that and going, you would have had to come up with so many workarounds uh, just to make sure you were still getting sunlight. Like I was thinking about the impracticalities of having painted the whole outside of it, but apparently that's less of an issue here inside three. Going back to sort of the artistic depictions, we have a lion dog statue immediately when they come in. We see a lot of dragon motifs on pillars, on windows. Uh, you know, stone lanterns, pagodas, tiled roofs. Well, and even like Stampa's, um, his cuffs have this like red with gold filigree motif, which evokes dragonness, even in kind of an abstract way. We see a lot of people in clothing, in robes that are meant to evoke some traditional Chinese clothing. There's even uh, one of the 
red and black caps on one of Stampa's men. This particular character is depicted very stereotypically like Chinese of the 1910s, With say. a very thin mustache. They make his eyes look very narrow in that racist caricature kind of way. When we get some views of the harbor, we see that the whole place is not done up in this sort of traditional architecture. The downtown area is a, a dense skyscraper-filled you know, metropolis. Uh, but then in the bay, there's a, an old-style junk sailing ship. Mm-hmm. And a lot of similar sort of pleasure barges. There are also houseboats. Uh, and I say houseboats because they all have laundry hanging to dry, and I can't imagine <laughs> any uh, boats that would do that unless people were living on them. Uh, I have no idea if the implication is that the people who live there are uh, poor or rich or somewhere in between. Probably not rich because the boats are small, but you're not necessarily impoverished if you live on a houseboat in a big city. See, I wonder if they aren't professional, like, performers working for this whole, like, theme park thing that Stampa is doing to properly evoke the vibe of, like, a Hong Kong or a Shanghai around the, you know, the turn of the century. You got to have people living on houseboats. But there also are legit poor people here. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. Haloy's compound sort of evokes the Forbidden City. It's a, a walled compound with a bunch of different buildings within it. I did think it was uh, a bit strange that the interior of his mansion looks like the interior of a ship. The way the paneling hmm. is drawn on the walls, on the floor, the lights on the ceiling. It's like they're inside a spaceship. It's not like they're inside a house. That is a little strange. Um. But there's a, a mask hanging on the wall, there's a painting, there's uh, a piece of wooden furniture, like a small table in a particularly sort of ornate style mm -hmm. that is recognizably Chinese. Well, I mean, when Judo clocks that one guard, he uses a lucky cat. Yes. The, the sort of stereotypical white cat with paw upraised. Holding the large coin, yeah. So we know that the entire colony is not necessarily done up like colonial Williamsburg before old Hong Kong vibe, but that there are parts of it sort of evoking that sense. And they're constructed as explicitly tourist facing because they describe this colony as like being maintained as a beautiful sightseeing destination. Judo counters that that makes it an amusement park and his uh, guide gets offended and Judo sort of smooths it over. But I think Judo is in fact very savvy because one of the common complaints about tourism as a form of revenue for a place and places that are very tourist focused is these are places that then end up structuring their entire existence around catering to the needs, wants, whims, desires of people who don't even live there. <laughs> Although in this case, it's pretty clear that Tiger Bomb is all structured around catering to the needs and wants and desires of Stampa Haloi first, and then foreign tourists second, and everybody else in a distant third. I did find myself thinking of other neutral colonies and how they've been portrayed to us 
In First Gundam, we saw bustling shopping districts, basically. I think that was the the big visual element to emphasize for us that this place was as yet untouched by the war. There's just people going about daily life. Uh, and it did look bright and wealthy. Everything was well lit and busy mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. were going about their lives. But there wasn't necessarily a sense of extreme wealth disparity. And then we've commented... You know, within Double Zeta, you know, mansions versus slums, tables piled with food, people who are not getting enough to eat, and that all being made explicit. Here, they don't really show it to us in the same way. They really, like, other than Stampa's mansion, it's more of a tell than a show, right? Because we have the, the young kids saying, oh, if we can't pay our taxes, they'll send us to work in the mines. Brief detour on that, since you brought up the mines line. Presumably this has to be off-colony. Right. They have to get shipped to an asteroid somewhere to do the mining there, which I'm sure is horrendous. The very fact that there is a tax burden on a bunch of children and that it is untenable, that they just cannot pay it, it's so much, and that there is, like prison labor, debt peonage, you know, like Mm -hmm. forced labor of people who cannot pay their tax debts. You know, these are horrifying societal circumstances that we are learning about here. And presumably Stampa's theme park colony is very expensive. His like sinophilic fantasy world that he's created is being financed by the uh, repression and extraction from the poor people of the colony. Also, that peace and neutrality are not free. Like, it's very expensive to fight a war. It's very expensive to arm yourself and supply an army and all the rest. But the minefields and the mobile suit collection that does exist and the fact that Stampa is not averse to arming himself with a warship, they're clearly going to some degree for the deterrent path on on neutrality. Well, and how many visitors can they have received since this war started? They wouldn't have mined their harbor if they were getting a ton of tourists or cruise ships coming to visit. So whatever revenue the theme park part of the colony was bringing in before, it sure isn't now. And I'm sure that's part of the reason why the taxes are so high. But I do want to take issue with what you said about it being a a tell-don't-show situation. Because we do get some telling, but also when we see these kids trying to hijack this bus in order to steal a mobile suit to sell it, we have to think about Shangri-La. The sense of deja vu is overwhelming. Yeah. In my notes, I called them the deja vu kids. Exactly. This is pretty close to the end of the show. We can be expected to have watched the prior episodes to already have in our heads this radical wealth disparity and to be able to... Uh, project what we know about the conditions that Judo and company were living in on Shangri-La onto this new gang of kids, Lunan, etc. I suppose. I just, um, and this may not be an, a fair <laughs> assessment or criticism, but if I were storyboarding something like this, I would probably swap either one of the big overhead pans of the interior of the colony or one of the pans that's just like buses on the highway for a pan of a poorer part of the city and a pan of 
the inside of a casino or a wealthy shopping street or, you know, those are things that could have taken a very few seconds of the episode and really you could like replace other scenes with them. You wouldn't have to make it any longer uh, that would have hammered that home, I think, in a more visual way. Uh, but it's true. The <laughs> so initially, I I had read all of this meaning into the deja vu kids and their appearance in this episode. But then, when you talked through the production details, I wondered if maybe they were just out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have any evidence of this. This is purely speculation. But I bet during the production process for Double Zeta initially, lots of different designs were created and rejected for our you know, core cast of main characters. And I wouldn't be shocked to learn that Lunan and his sister and their friends were like based on early design drafts for what the Gundam team might have looked like. Well, Lunan's shirt looks similar to Judo's and is the same color. His hair is the same color as Judo's hair, but is the same style as Bicha's. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, there's a strong visual similarity. There's a tall one. There's a little there's sister. There's a little sister, exactly. And that might be just about evoking the deja vu feeling, which it certainly does. But it also might be something more. We have talked about Double Zeta's class awareness basically since the beginning. And it feels like a strong reminder that there is omnipresent grinding poverty throughout everywhere that humans live. Mm -hmm. That despite all of the beauty, despite all of the new technology, despite the wonder of humans living in space, humanity has not managed to solve some of its like core ills. It's also a pretty strong reminder of how far the kids from Shangri-La have come, that they are so strong now and work together so well, that they're so skilled, but also that part of the reason they have been able to become that and part of the reason they have changed the way that they have is because while they are definitely worrying about their uh, survival more now, Having to worry about surviving in battle is different than having to constantly worry about your next meal or wondering if you're going to be able to make rent. And how much their perspective on that has changed gets emphasized in the hijacking scene, which the hijacking scene itself is more than a little reminiscent of when in episode two, Yazan uses that same style of chibi mobile suit to do basically the same thing to a delivery truck with a support truck mm -hmm. and yeah it's attacking, almost attacking the windshield to take out the driver the whole thing it's almost identical um but when judo has captured lunan and is interrogating him about this judo is at first so surprised that lunan wants to steal a gundam and judo doesn't quite get it. He doesn't immediately understand why someone would want to steal a Gundam. And it kind of comes back to him in pieces as they have this discussion. And by the end of it, Judo is like, oh, yeah, that's totally how I used to think about things, too. Right. Wait, you want to sell the Gundam, even though that is exactly what they wanted to do mm -hmm, when they first mm -hmm. learned that one was nearby. <laughs> how quickly his perspective has changed. 
The final point that I feel the Deja Vu kids illustrate, and one that these three Gundam series go out of their way to point out, is that war is coming, ready or not, neutral or not, you cannot truly stay out of it. I thought you were going to say that the final thing they teach us is how funny it is to see Beecha getting shoved out of the way by a kid saying, see, I can be the hero too, evoking classic Beecha-ness there, Lunan. The Deja Vu kids basically help the Shangri-La kids because Dampa. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's pretty much the only reason. <laughs> but you're right in that I think Stampa's closest analogs here are Mr. Damar from Shangri-La, the rich, wine-obsessed snob who was a, a port official of some kind and took bribes from Axis Zeon and ultimately had his mansion destroyed in the process, who showed us that no matter how wealthy and savvy and untouchable you think you are, trying to take advantage of the war will backfire on you. But the other person that Stampa evokes, if you go all the way back to First Gundam and the side six episodes, is Bergamino, that sort of ridiculous war profiteer from side six who was so convinced that he could stay out of it and above it all because he had connections on both sides. And yeah, the end of this episode with the Endra 2, Mashima and Ilya arriving shows us very clearly that Tiger Bomb's efforts at neutrality are not going to work. Speaking of Stampa, I he is so over the top, comically gross. Well, not even comically in like the excess, not in that he made me laugh because I was more just disturbed and uh, put off by him. It's grotesque, and I really don't understand why they felt like this was a good storyline here. So Stampa is like a horrible, gross old man, right? Um, he's leering and lecherous. He's obsessed with these young girls that he likes to watch through his TV screens, that he uses his power and his influence to collect them into his harem. And in this way, he's kind of like the Ur double Zeta adult, advanced age, power, wealth, um, and also these like gross personal desires that he is satisfying using those aforementioned uh, assets. And Judo says very clearly at the end of this episode, when he's talking to Haman, the things that adults want, these adult desires are bad and they're destroying the world. And I think we can see a connection there between that line and the way Stampa behaves, but also the way that basically all powerful adults in Double Zeta are portrayed as behaving. I had a, a light bulb moment while you were talking, and that is that fundamentally, this is about greed. It's about wanting things so far in excess of your needs, <laughs> because it's not that Stampa wants to be with a beautiful woman or a couple of beautiful... He wants, like, every beautiful woman who comes into this colony for his harem. And that that greed, while we haven't necessarily seen it expressed in this way before, it's part and parcel of, like, Haman's greed for power. You know, what for? She already has so much. And it's, well, because she just wants to amass more power. At this point, it's amassing power for its own sake. Uh, you know, his harem is 
an expression of and an exercise of his power. It's all power and greed for more power. Totally. He doesn't want to be with these women. He wants to possess them, to have power over them, to own them. And, I mean, on top of the fact that these women are all being uh, kidnapped and taken against their will, one of the guards hints that uh, some unsavory things are happening. Yeah, when Judo is pretending to cry as he's being led away, the guard is like, you don't really want to be here. Like, this is for the best. You don't know what goes on here. Stampa's awfulness is both on display and implied. There is yet further awfulness. But I think this is also incredibly revelatory about LP Pudu. Even though she's several episodes dead now and not present for this, and who am I glad she wasn't present for this? But one of the big questions with LP Pudu and especially around her name and her portrayal as this very, like, very, very young, but also sexualized character, um, sexualized more so by the fans and in sort of secondary media than in the show itself, but absolutely, definitely treated as a sexualized character by Gundam, by the larger Gundam fandom, and of course, Puru too, even more so. And as a person who is very much objectified by Glemmy within the story as someone that Glemmy wants to possess. And the big question around El Pipuru is, is the show itself treating her as an object or is the show trying to criticize the very common, very popular objectification of little girls in media at the time? And making Stampa such an over-the-top, ridiculous creep, I think, goes a long way to showing that it was the latter. And particularly his uh, his utter lack of concern for their age, ages. Like, he's looking at a pretty broad range of ages of women here, and it doesn't seem to bother him in the least that some of them are very young. Well, especially Lunan's little sister, yeah. who's probably the same age as Lena or as Elpi. Yeah. And even more than that, Stampa only very briefly interacts with all of these characters in person. Most of the time, what he's doing is watching them through his TV screen and talking creepily about them. And they're being observed by secret cameras. Very voyeuristic. And at one point, he describes Haman's young companion as delicious yeah oish soul which i i meant to check and see whether that's a slang for like sexy or something um i assume it must have a, a usage in reference to people and who are attractive but like it means delicious looking yeah the implication any way you slice it is of consumption i want to eat you up kind of thing and I brought up the thing with the TV screens earlier because as a like gross old dude leering at young women through TV screens, it feels like he has to be a send up of a certain kind of otaku. With a collection of girls and a collection of mobile suits. Precisely. The other aspect of this storyline is it sets up uh, something very tropey, which is that you have a bunch of men who have to disguise themselves as women to sneak into a harem and rescue some w women from a harem, which is a kind of story that I assume has existed for as long as harems have. 
I'm sure it has. You know, you pointed out that it comes up in a popular video game. What? Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is this is years after Double Zeta, but almost precisely this setup happens in Final Fantasy VII. You have uh, Don Corneo, who I, that's the English translation. I don't know his Japanese name. So Don Corneo is a uh, he's a wealthy merchant and a crime boss, I think, who has a big mansion overlooking this very poor district. And he sends his goons out to kidnap beautiful young women and uh, force them to join his harem. And he does this to one of the heroines of the game. And so the protagonist, who's male, has to dress up like a woman in order to infiltrate Don Corneo's harem and rescue his friend. And I think this is more than coincidental. Final Fantasy VII includes some very explicit Gundam references. They were clearly fans of the series, and this storyline seems a little too similar to be uh, just an accident. We get the whole scene of the disguises being put on, makeup and wigs and dresses. And so we have two young men in disguise. We have Judo and Eno going in for their part of the rescue. Judo, I think, being the most straightforward of the two, he's the classic, ha-ha, man in dress, that's funny, which has its own problems, but is certainly a trope and an aspect of a bunch of different stories. Uh, with Eno, we felt that things were a bit more complicated. Yeah, the two are presented as contrasts at pretty much every stage of this. When they're first getting ready, Judo is, like, all gung-ho about it. And Eno is actually quite reluctant. Eno is like, I don't want to do this. I'm uncomfortable. But then once they actually get dressed up, it seems that Eno falls into the role much more naturally. Certainly he performs the, the feminine behaviors expected of him uh, much more easily. More convincingly, exactly. certainly. When I'm setting up my notes for these discussions, I often write things out as questions for us to talk about, even if I already have my own ideas about them. And so my question is, is this depiction of Eno meant to tell us anything about his gender, his sexuality, his identity, or not? Because a straight, cisgendered man could want to wear dresses. That doesn't necessarily mean anything about his gender or sexuality. But it also can mean something about his gender and sexuality. And is the show trying to say anything, or even without trying, is it giving us some additional depth about this character? Throughout the show up to this point, Eno has been less stereotypically masculine than Judo or Bicha or Mondo. He gravitates more naturally towards support roles, nurturing roles, domestic tasks on the ship. He's less comfortable fighting. He's not a mobile suit pilot. He pilots one of the core fighters sometimes. Rarely. And early on in the show, he was often seen with Shinta and Kum as a unit, more like the way Fa was with them. And personally, I think that Eno's initial reluctance to put on the dress and the wig and the makeup comes from a position of not being as secure in his masculine identity. You know, for Judo, there's no question of who he is, even when he puts on this disguise. But maybe for Eno, there's more of a, a question. Maybe those lines are more blurred. 
you know, displays behavior that is often associated with women in our society. He's more soft-spoken. He's less aggressive and less violent. He's more of a peacemaker and less argumentative. He's more polite, generally. Uh, the way that he eats in that one scene where we have everybody eating, he's just tidier and complies more closely with sort of rules of table manners. We often say of gender that it is performative. And what we mean by that is that gender is really a agglomeration of things that you do. It's ways you represent yourself to society at large. It's the way you talk, it's the way you dress, it's the way you act, it's the things you do. And so Eno's behavior is already more androgynous, more ambiguous, compared to the overflowing, overwhelming masculinity of a judo or a bicha. And maybe that's why Eno is so convincing in the disguise. Everybody who doesn't know Eno is taken in by it, because it, perhaps the missing piece for Eno is the clothing, the aesthetic performance of gender. Now, none of this makes Eno a woman, necessarily, but it does make him a more transgressive figure. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that Gundam would give us an explicitly trans character, particularly from this era. Ah, I'm glad you brought up the era, because I did a little bit of research. Oh, is there a trans character in later Gundam? I'm not going to address that because uh. that's a spoiler, but I'm glad you brought up the 1980s. <laughs> um, because prior to World War II, cross-dressing was a big thing in Japan. And there were lots of examples of it, too many to begin going into here. Um, but following World War II, it receded into the underground, into the background, into obscurity, but began to emerge again in the 1980s. And there was a very high-profile event in the early 1980s that I think has to have partly inspired this episode, either directly or indirectly. Because in 1981, a woman named Matsubara Rumiko won a Tokyo beauty contest. And then she became an overnight sensation afterwards when it was revealed uh, that she was a trans woman. Oh, wow. Okay. She posed semi-nude for men's magazines. She released an album of songs and appeared in a major motion picture after this. Wow. Yeah. Well, but so I will make the distinction and we get into some complicated language issues, but she wasn't cross-dressing. She was a trans woman. Right. Dressing as a woman. Right. But she was like a major media sensation at right. the time in this very era, an era when trans issues were coming to the fore, emerging from the shadows, and likewise cross-dressing and other... Sort of gender transgressing behavior. Exactly. The distinction we're making being like cross-dressing is dressing in a way that does not conform with your gender versus like drag is sort of like cross-dressing, but it's very performative and exaggerated and you're not trying to pass versus someone, including a trans person, dressing in conformity with their gender, which, you know, is all like different things, but can get confused, particularly when we're not certain of the gender identity of the person in question. <laughs> Luckily, because of her celebrity, Matsubara Rumiko, gave interviews and talked about these things and was very clear about her gender identity. So there's no real doubt about that. 
in a lot of ways, gender is a... We might get some angry emails about this one. <laughs> in a lot of ways, gender is a tool of state repression. Gender is a way of organizing people into neat little categories that are very useful for the uh, state apparatus, but which are not particularly well suited to the um, multifaceted ways that human beings exist and live their lives and define themselves. And this is especially true, well, this is true everywhere, but it's especially true in Japan, where a lot of these ideas are coming out of uh, explicit, top-down, legally imposed gender dynamics from the Taisho and Showa eras, so 1900s um, up through World War II and then the American occupation afterwards, explicitly coming from a nationalist, ultra-nationalist, fascist kind of place. In a research piece a long time ago, Nina talked about the ideal Japanese woman as constructed by the government as a kind of like good mother, good wife. The point was essentially to give birth to and then raise soldiers for the empire. And some of the Japanese government's uh, strictures around gender and the way people performed gender uh, did come out of exposure to the U.S. and Europe and uh, this desire to kind of bring themselves into conformity with how the West dealt with these things. But some of it predates it by quite a lot. Some of Ino's behavior when he's dressed up and in disguise made me think of kabuki actors because, you know, we've talked about Takarazuka before, we've talked about kabuki before, but these are artistic traditions where all of the actors are of one gender. In kabuki, all of the actors are men. In Takarazuka, all of the actors are women. And people take on a specialty. They play masculine or feminine roles, and they train specifically to that purpose. And then Tom was uh, reminding me that you know, some of these kabuki actors who were playing feminine roles on the stage continued to dress and behave as women even when they weren't on stage and that the Edo government had a problem with this. We did a little poking around and we couldn't find good sources for whether these actors who were women off stage as well as on were men who were cross-dressing or were trans women. Like we, we couldn't find good sources about that and so it's a bit unclear. All we can speak to is the, the clothing and behavior. And so this is, you know, before the country was really opened up, but there were still concerns about how gender was being performed in the populace. And when we look at the era when the country was starting to open up and westernize, that westernization was not equal. Men started to wear Western dress and live in a Western style and engage in Western style consumption long before women did with the exception of the uh, MOGA, or modern gals, who were women, mostly working class, who dressed in Western clothing. They would typically dress in Western women's clothing, but to wear Western clothing at all was a masculine action, and therefore they were already transgressing that gender binary. Some of them wore Western men's clothing, all of which was very, very worrisome to the government. These were bad girls. Right. And they were going outside of the house. They were working outside of the house. They were engaged in licentious relationships, even though they weren't married. 
all very unwomanly behavior by the definitions of the time. Just a moment ago, I mentioned how for the state, especially the empire, the ideal woman was a mother who gave birth to many soldiers and raised them to be good little soldiers of the empire. And after the war, the attitude changed, but not as much as you might think. It was still about making good little soldiers of industry, salarymen, workers to power the economic engine of Japan to catch up to the West. Right. How different is the kyoiku mama, the education-focused mother, from the wise mother of early imperial Japan? Yeah, not a lot. <laughs> this is more of that idea of gender as a tool of repression for the state. And in the mid-60s in Japan, uh, surgery to alter a person's genitals was basically made illegal when a doctor who had performed this surgery on some trans women was arrested and convicted for doing so. And the law that they convicted him under was the 1940 eugenics law, inspired, of course, by the Nazi eugenics program, which forbid um, sterilizing any healthy person without a reason. Mm. The notion is very much like the crime that has occurred here is that you have interfered with the like reproduction of the the race, right? And I use race very particularly because we are talking about an explicitly eugenic law. I was going to point to the irony of that, given that under, I believe under current Japanese law, you cannot officially change your gender unless you have been rendered sterile. So in 2019, Japan's Supreme Court upheld a fairly recent law, a 2003 law, that requires transgender people to have their gonads removed or rendered non-functional before they can legally change their gender. Even before that 2003 law, doctors were not allowed to alter the genitals of a trans person until 1996. So it was still very much illegal when Double Zeta was made. But this is more than just every womb in service to the nation. Clothing reinforces hierarchy. Even before the Japanese Empire, the Edo government legislated what clothing, what colors, what styles, what fabrics each class of people was allowed to wear. Right. I mean, and sumptuary laws, as they were often called in Europe, have existed in many different societies uh, because you wouldn't want people thinking they could change their class. You wouldn't want people thinking they could change their station. And in the empire, what you wore, Western clothing, Japanese clothing, Chinese clothing, Korean clothing, these conveyed your status within the empire's racial hierarchy. And to go back to Stampa and what is the point of Stampa and this whole storyline, Stampa shows us what Gundam Double Zeta has always said. The state as a thing is an apparatus for satisfying the greedy personal desires of those who happen to be at the top of it, at the expense of everybody else. One other thing that stood out to me about Ino's portrayal in the outfit uh, that may or may not hint at something about his sexuality, I don't think there's enough there to go on, but I wanted to bring it up, is that when he first gets dressed up, Bicha teases him and sort of like waggles his eyebrows at him and leers at him a little bit. And Eno is very uncomfortable. He says, don't look at me like that. Later, when Rue looks at him and is like, what is with that getup? 
he takes this very like coy feminine pose and says, oh, I think it suits me. <laughs> uh, is it just that he's gotten comfortable in the clothes, in the role? Is it is it just a matter of it going from feeling very strange to feeling sort of okay because he's been doing it for a few hours? Or is it context dependent? Is it that it's comfortable to be that way around women in this room that is only women and uncomfortable to be this way in mixed company or around men? Is his discomfort with Beach's joke, is that about Eno's personal sense of masculinity? Is it because he's uncomfortable with a man even pretending to be attracted to him? You know, is it a gay panic? Is it a self-hating gay thing? Is it, like, uncomfortable because he doesn't want people to think he's gay and so even pretend flirting? Like, you know, it's it's super complicated to even try to pick apart why he's uncomfortable there, but... I mean, I actually think it's way simpler than any of that. I think Eno has never before experienced the male gaze and it makes him uncomfortable. Fair. <laughs> All right, not to talk about a bunch, but just a point that I want to throw out there. I do not understand what Haman is doing. Like, why go to all this trouble and all this risk to not really convincingly try to get Judo over to your side? Like, all she says to him is, I will recognize you as a new type and you won't have to die horribly. Like, that's a horrible pitch. Just because she doesn't know how to recruit Judo doesn't mean she's not trying to. She's expended so much resource in trying to do it, and then her attempt is so and bad. I mean, they bleep that. Theory time. We are told in the prior episode that Haman has an evil aura that warps people, that makes them like her. We have observed the effect that she has on people like Mashima. We are told by Sarasa and Rasara in this episode that their powers are protecting the Gundam team from Haman. My theory is Haman is accustomed to swaying people to her side with this power that she has, like Sirocco did. And maybe she doesn't even realize she's doing it, which is why she doesn't understand why it's not working. But if her influence, if her new type power, her corrupting aura can bring people over to her side, then she expects that by getting in proximity with Judo, she'll be able to do that to him. And there's that moment when they touch in the prior episode and that energy comes from her. And it almost, in retrospect now, seems like it's trying to get into him, that dragon thing that swirls all around him and then dissipates, perhaps because he is being protected by the Light Tribe and their powers. Okay, I completely don't buy all of that, like, magic-y mumbo-jumbo. And I'm not sure the story does either. Because when Sarasa first mentions Haman's evil aura, her sister is like, oh, you mean the thing from Haman? And she's like, uh... I guess probably. <laughs> sure, Haman. Haman's the only evil aura here. Well, she says it's getting worse. Um, and there are many different evil auras all coming together. There's Stampa, there's Haman, and now Mashima. Right. I just, um, 
I'm not convinced that the Light Tribe is actually doing them any good. I mean, look at Rosara was like, oh, let my sister handle Stampa. And she tries to show Stampa the error of his ways, that his heart is closed off and greedy, but that he can choose to be a better person. And that doesn't do any good. Doesn't it's not like, it? He doesn't have a change of heart. Well, maybe he would have if he hadn't gotten clocked on the back of the head. Eh. Nina. Just admit that my theory is correct, and I'll recognize your powers as a podcaster. Everything you want for the podcast is wrong! And now Nina's research on medicinal ointments. Or near enough. Really just one particular medicinal ointment. As I mentioned in the talkback, the title of this episode, Tiger Balm Dream, seems to be a reference to Tiger Balm the Ointment. The katakana spelling of the colony name is Taiga Baumu, almost exactly the same as Tiger Balm the product's name in Japan. The product has a long ah sound instead of an oo sound. Tiger Balm is one of those products that is sold all over the world. But in case you're unfamiliar, it's an herbal ointment for joint and muscle pain, with very distinctive packaging. A hexagonal glass jar, metal lid, Chinese writing, and eponymous tiger. In the way of companies, they have some other products now too. Patches, sprays, gels. But the original is far and away the most famous. None of which explains why they would name a flashy, Hong Kong-inspired, amusement park-esque colony for this product. Maybe it was just a sponsorship deal. We'll get to that. Tiger Balm was first invented by Chinese herbalist Ah Chu Kin in the 1870s, and he had immigrated from Fujian province in China to what was then Rangoon, British Burma, and founded an apothecary shop. He died in 1908, leaving the shop to his two sons, Ah Boon Ha and Ah Boon Par, who moved the business to Singapore in the 1920s and began to sell their products throughout the region. The parent company is the Ha Par Corporation, presumably named for the two brothers, and was founded in 1932 as a private company before going public and being listed on the Singapore Exchange in 1969. This same period saw the company growing and diversifying until, in 1971, the British investment company Slater Walker gained a controlling stake in Ha Par. According to the Hopar website, Slater Walker was known for stripping assets and promptly divested Hopar from many of its major operating businesses. Not to mention outlicensing the Tiger Balm brand for 20 years. These sales, plus the stock market boom at the time, paid for a number of new acquisitions. And by 1974, the Hopar portfolio included pharmaceuticals, trading, insurance, property, tin mining oil palms, marine, and investment banking. <laughs> there was a stock market crash in 73 that sent Hopar's stock ricocheting up and down. Slater Walker collapsed and was bailed out by the Bank of England. An investigation in Singapore uncovered irregularities in Hopar's accounts, and Hopar almost collapsed in 1975. The Singaporean government intervened, a new board was installed, and the former board chairman was sentenced to jail time. In an effort to keep the business from going under, from 1975 to 1979, Hopar sold off its loss-making businesses, 
invested in new ventures like TV production and a joint venture with Sony to sell and market Sony products in Malaysia and Singapore, and they paid no dividends. Nowadays, lots of companies don't pay dividends, but this is presented on the Hopar website as something very unusual. A quick note for anyone who may not be familiar, some companies pay a portion of their profits to their shareholders, and that's called a dividend. Uh, Companies that don't do this are, in theory, investing those profits back into the company. By 1979, Hopar was profitable again and able to go back to paying dividends to its shareholders. Throughout the 1980s, Hopar's growth and success is described as mirroring that of Singapore itself. Some of you will have heard the phrase Asian tiger economies, or four Asian tigers. It refers to the extremely high growth rates and rapid industrialization in South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore from the 1960s through the 1990s. More than 7% growth per year for decades. Side note, this period of growth for these four countries is also called the Asian Miracle. Uh, And it turns out in East Asia, these countries were also called the Four Asian Dragons, or Four Little Dragons. Many of the long-standing associations we have with these countries' economies come out of this period, such as Singapore and Hong Kong being financial centers, and South Korea and Taiwan being known for electronics and components manufacturing. To quote their website, by the mid-1980s, Hapar was a conglomerate with a diversified portfolio of global businesses, encompassing financial services and investments, property, pharmaceuticals, consumer electronics, information technology, industrial and engineering, shipping, textiles, travel, sports, and leisure. They owned and managed commercial and residential properties in Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong. And it occurred to me that If there was a sense of them owning a large chunk of Hong Kong, that might get us to one person, like Stampa Haloi, owning or running an entire colony, like Tiger Bomb. In the leisure category, Hopar has owned and operated golf driving ranges, bowling alleys, and, most relevant to us, oceanariums. While I couldn't find a timeline for that, or an indication of what, if any, oceanariums they operated in the 80s, I can't help but wonder if that's why our introduction to Stampa has him standing in front of a massive aquarium, or possibly a window, into one of the colony's large bodies of water, with a shark swimming around behind him. See, I assumed that was just a way to emphasize his predatory nature. This research piece gets at one of the recurring major difficulties I have in our research. What I most want in this case is Japanese or international newspaper coverage about the Hapar Corporation, or Tiger Balm, but from the 1980s. I want a sense of the contemporary to double Zeta perception of this company and its management. But most of what's available to me now is fact-focused historical data. One solution would be to go to the library to access online archives or microfiche But at the best of times, our tight release schedule makes that kind of research hard to pull off. And during COVID, it's simply not possible. I also find myself pretty put out by how difficult it is to access online archives as an individual. And the archives I can view go back 20 years at most. This is a pretty big digression, I know, but it's a persistent frustration for me how hard it is to get a sense for how people felt about something, how people perceived it in a different era. 
Thankfully, even without that, I did find something that more clearly connects the Tiger Bomb Company and the Tiger Bomb Colony of Gundam Double Zeta. We just have to backtrack a little. The All Brothers business was doing well enough that in the 1930s they built two family mansions with surrounding gardens, one in Hong Kong and one in Singapore, completed within about a year of each other. The one in Singapore is on 21 acres, or 8.5 hectares, and the gardens depict scenes from Chinese mythology, religion, philosophy, history, and literature. The gardens were also open to the public and were called Tiger Bomb Gardens. A popular tourist destination throughout the 60s and 70s, the gardens underwent refurbishment in the 80s and still exist today. Though, since the 1980s, they've been run by the Singapore Tourism Board, and the site is now called Hopar Villa. The Hong Kong Tiger Bomb Gardens were similar in many ways. They also surround a family mansion, they were also open to the public, and they're also full of sculptures and murals that depict scenes. Both parks are particularly well known for their childhood-scarring depictions of hell. The Hong Kong Park has a large wall-relief sculpture depicting the 18 levels of Buddhist hell, while the Singapore Park has a long tunnel called the Ten Courts of Hell, which illustrates in gruesome detail how various sins are punished in the afterlife. The Hong Kong Gardens were refurbished in 1985 for their 50th anniversary. One source describes the gardens being converted into an amusement park, with sculptures removed and replaced by rides for a time before being converted back. But I couldn't find any pictures of the park with theme park rides in it, and no other source mentioned it, so I'm not sure that it actually happened. <laughs> Regardless, for decades, the garden, with its Chinese landscaping punctuated by brightly colored, uh, some would say garish, sculptures, was attraction enough. The Hong Kong property has since been sold, with most of the land developed and no more public garden, but the mansion is a registered landmark and has undergone a few rounds of restoration and preservation. Stampa Haloi being a total creep is a major part of this episode, but nothing came up in my research to indicate that he was inspired by either of the All Brothers. Nothing salacious about the family or the parks came up, except for a single photo dated 1965, that claims to be of the park and shows a long row of statues of naked, grinning women. Other, more clearly sourced photos and articles show topless mermaids or mention topless women being tortured in some of the hell scenes, but nothing that read lascivious in the same way as the row of nude beauties. One of the unique aspects of the Hong Kong Tiger Bomb Gardens was its architecture. The 8-acre, or 3.2-hectare grounds include a 7-story Tiger Pagoda, which was considered a highlight of the garden. This pagoda and other buildings on the grounds, including the mansion, were built in what's called the Chinese Renaissance architectural style. Popular in the 1920s and 1930s, it was developed by young Chinese architects who'd been educated abroad and wanted to revive and revitalize traditional Chinese architecture, adapting it to modern life and contemporary building techniques. It was also a reaction to the growing European and American influence in the architecture of Chinese cities. Tiger Bomb Gardens was one of Hong Kong's first amusement parks, and one source pointed out that, quote, public leisure facilities for the Chinese community were thin on the ground in colonial Hong Kong, and Tiger Bomb Garden was a rare exception. Remember, Hong Kong was a British colony from 1842 until 1997. 
Conservation architect Roger Wu points out that everybody of a certain age would have been to Tiger Balm Garden. More recently, in 2017, Hong Kong-based American artist Adrian Wong created an installation inspired by the garden, and articles about it highlight some of the reasons why the park might have inspired Tiger Balm Colony. To quote one article, In Wong's installation, the park represents a phantasmagoric version of Chinese culture that has been filtered through the colonial experience. A ghost of a cliché, as he puts it. It represents Hong Kong's embrace of Orientalist tropes, something replicated in the architecture of the Hopar Mansion, but also in the kung fu movies of the 60s and 70s, which were often filmed in those modern Chinese Renaissance spaces. Wong identifies that same sense of simulated Hong Kong in Chinatowns, banquet halls, and cultural centers the world over, and says that these spaces highlight the differences between the Hong Kong that is and the Hong Kong of the imagination, not to mention the tensions around culture, heritage, and how Hong Kong views itself. One article about Adrian Wong's work points out that, like Wong, Abun Ha was a member of the Chinese diaspora, and his conception of Chinese culture was that of someone from outside looking in. Conservationist Ken Nicholson wrote that Abun Ha was worried that ethnic Chinese residents of Singapore and Hong Kong, both British colonies, were losing touch with their cultural identity, and that his vision for the parks was to promote Buddhist, Taoist, and Confucian morality, all while promoting the Tiger Balm product. Of course. One piece I would have liked to research more but ran out of time was whether Tiger Bomb Gardens was a popular site with Japanese tourists, or whether it got much coverage in the Japanese press. The very existence of this colony in Gundam Double Zeta, just a year or two after the garden's highly publicized 50th anniversary, seems to point to yes, but one other detail points to the impact that the garden had on the Japanese imagination. Years later, in 1993, to be exact, Super Street Fighter II came out, and one of its levels is very obviously inspired by Tiger Bomb Gardens. This is a research piece that really benefits from the show notes and all the pictures they include, so I really hope you'll check them out. I'll also put together some side-by-side shots of particularly notable similarities and post those to social media and Patreon. It's garish and bright, funny and frightening, cultural and kitschy, moralizing, self-aggrandizing. And if someone were generations removed from Hong Kong, with a family history spanning colonies on Earth and in space, with the means and the desire to make a theme park version of Hong Kong, a copy for the Universal Century, perhaps Tiger Bomb Colony is what they'd make. You're right. You look like you want yeah, to say yeah. something else. I was, um, I was considering whether or not I should say something about how it seemed to us watching it, even before learning all of this, like Stampa's version of Chinese culture, Chinese art, was very much an outsider looking in or a member of the diaspora, generations removed, looking back on a culture poorly remembered and mostly reflected through these uh, kitschy artifacts. Well, and the, and the dual nature of any such effort, the idea that it's educational and preservational, but that fundamentally it's a tourist attraction because you have to get people to show up. <laughs> And that ultimately, it's also self-interested. 
He has no shortage of self-interest. There's a, they were doing this thing and they did open it to the public, but it was also to promote a product. Mm -hmm. When we talked a little bit in the talkback about the houseboats, and I sort of wondered, did the people of this colony build those houseboats because they came from Shanghai or Hong Kong or Singapore or any number of cities and this was a this was their culture that they were replicating in space or was this mandated by Stampa because this was how he wanted the colony to look yeah the thing that struck me the most about the photographs and the the photos and there's some video i'm also posting video which Ooh, is really cool nice uh range from black and white to color and the colors are so garish you know you read about it and you think it's going to be kind of solemn but no it's bright and feels a bit alice in wonderland and yeah there's a lot of morality tales but there's also scenes from romance of the three kingdoms scenes from journey to the west well and i remember you showed me some of the pictures and you know when you talk about the statues they're not life-size statues they're larger than life some everything of, is some of them are smaller there's no consistency <laughs> of scale all right well the wall of naked ladies was definitely larger <laughs> than life but like i say that's one that showed up on like imager or some sort of image collection from somebody's personal photographs and maybe they visited hong kong in the 60s and they posted these someplace and because it's not part of an article about the place it's a little hard to know if it's being correctly attributed and then that those sculptures didn't show up in any other photographs i saw and so i don't have like a corroborating source so listeners if you or your parents have ever been have ever been to the tiger bomb gardens <laughs> and you remember like a big old wall of giant naked women sculptures let us know Next time on episode 3.39, Panic at the Theme Park, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 41, and looking down her nose, the minimum amount of animation, amateur hour, weak waves, brain poison, and new type nonsense, Goon Squad. Unexpected Grenade Launcher Tom's going to lose his cool for a moment An Old Crone Neon Lights Ashibarai And Kataki Or sometimes you gotta do a vengeance You will see the battlefield of new types Mobosuit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. And special thanks this week to Ruby St. Denez, who served as our sensitivity listener for the discussion of sex, trans issues, and gender non-conforming presentation in this episode. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players.
You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, When all you have is a hamahama, everything looks like a nail argama. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from Flamingor Zed. Thank you, Flamingor Zed. And thank you for listening. Hello, Nina. Hello, Tom. Hello, podcast. as a hippo I would never be afraid of anything ever again which uh, sounds pretty rad to be honest <laughs> I can see the appeal as two people who are routinely afraid of a lot of things I think we both <laughs> see the appeal Nina I'm not afraid of a lot of things I'm paranoid I'm afraid of a lot of things and I'm ready Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool. Love to be ready. All right, and we are recording, so I'm, uh, I'm going to start. <clears throat> dun, 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 dun! The end! It's over! <laughs> oh, I was just going to lead into how comically gross he is mm-hmm. and that I don't really understand why we have this plot line here. I'm going in the same direction. I think I have an answer for that. So you start with the question. I have in my notes a thing that you're going to have to bleep or cut. But it's the... Well. <clears throat> Ice cream truck. not want your iced creams go away the summer has arrived again so i had my one other point about enol but i don't want to cut you off mm. if you have something that transitions i have i have a i have a finisher on this okay um oh no we were gonna talk about should we talk about sarasa we, we have been, been talking, talking for more than time. an hour yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, this, there's been a lot to say here. Um, hit us with the wrong Gundam opinion. Very appropriate verb choice there, because the wrong <laughs> Gundam opinion is... Oh, it's a beautiful ending. I was proud of that. <laughs> I thought that, that was, was... really good. That was really good. This is rather good. <laughs> Take out the pauses. Make me sound better. Cleaning up the audio files.